Good morning. Second Corinthians chapter three. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we might be spirit-filled as we listen. Lord, that I might be spirit-filled as we teach. Lord, that we might be obedient. And Lord, if there are any here that do not know you as their own personal Savior, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians 3, the message is entitled, The Gospel Ministry. Now, every believer has opportunity and is called to be a part of ministry, the gospel ministry. Now, Paul is speaking from his own experience and perspective as a preacher, as an elder, as an apostle, And he's answering, maybe it's somebody in the church of Corinth that has written and said, hey, these guys are coming and they have all these letters of authenticity and authority. And Paul, why don't you send us something from yourself? Or maybe it's just somebody that's against him and say, who is Paul? He doesn't have any authority. 
And so Paul writes, because that's part of the gospel ministry, standing for the truth, making sure you're telling the truth, and then there's always those that come with error to be a distraction. It always is amazing to me that we have those that come from the outside and they want to tell us better how to disciple, you know. Over the years, we've had many opportunities where people come in from the outside and they say, well, here's how you, here's how you fix this. And they don't come in that way. They later say that. And say, well, I think we should disciple this way. And normally, it's people that have no fruit. And so my answer to them is, well, you win somebody to the Lord and then you disciple them how you think you should disciple them. Jude talks about those guys. He said they're clouds without rain, they're autumn trees without fruit. So Paul just naturally says, fellas, folks, church, I don't need those because you are the letter. God used me to bring you the truth. You receive Christ, and your story is written on my heart. The gospel ministry, first of all, is very personal. Those people that you see come to Christ... God writes them on their heart. There's nobody more precious. And you remember them. My dad has begun to struggle in his memory as he gets older. And he has a few questions he asks me every time I call him. And he runs through those questions. And then we'll run through those questions again. But one of the questions he asked me pretty regularly is, okay, so you have that uh, fellow out there that used to be up in, I said, Billings. Yeah, Lynn Howe. Yep. And then he can tell me the story of how Lynn came to Christ without missing a beat. Because God takes those people that you have led to Christ and he writes them on your heart. That's what Paul said. He said, you're the epistle to everybody around you. Your life is different. When you come to Christ, that's like a separate epistle. Your testimony of how you came to Jesus Christ, how God on purpose reached down through time and space and got your attention. The Holy Spirit convicted you of your lost condition and drew you to himself. And Paul says, listen, it's not about my sufficiency. See, he just ended the last verse of the chapter before, and he said, hey, we don't have to be hucksters here. We don't have to peddle our influence. We just preach the gospel. Paul said in Romans 1.16, it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. But he said, you're a testimony of our ministry. So it's ridiculous to think that Paul would have to go back and get some letters of authority from someplace when the authority from God is written all over the place. They are the authority. And he said, not that I'm sufficient in myself. No, no, the gospel, God the Holy Spirit, that's the, that's the sufficiency. But we can have confidence in ministry because Jesus said the gospel's powerful seed. Don't change it. Don't try to weaken it. Don't dress it up. Don't try to make it more palatable. Just share the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And so Paul said, we have confidence not because we're so great, but because God is great, because the gospel is powerful. Thirdly, he says in verse 6, 
this new covenant ministry is life-giving ministry because it's spiritual ministry. God made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. And that's what we minister. You see, when you spread the gospel, it's not a matter of telling, hey, change the way you live, get a haircut, you know, change the way you do things, and then Jesus will take you. No, that was the law. In fact, these Judaizers came, and they said, well, it's good you've received Jesus, that's great, but you've forgotten the Jewish part. So you need to not eat this, you need to eat this. What a conundrum. Paul is ministering to people that are in a pagan culture that are drifting back into paganism and not dealing with sin. So he's got to instruct them on that. At the same time, he's got to deal with his Judaizers and say, listen, you've got to become Jewish also. How does he do it? He's a minister of the new covenant, just like you are as a believer. That's why the Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So that when you are in discipleship or you're ministering the gospel, you're growing in your knowledge of the, of the word so you, like an old country doctor, can go to your medicine bag and apply the word of God to people's lives. Christians that are hurting or people that understand the gospel. That's what Paul said. He was a minister of the new covenant. Now in verses 7 through 15, we have the glory of the old covenant. Because there was glory. This last week I had a wonderful time going back in Exodus chapters 19 through 34. How did the old covenant come with glory? Oh, it was glory. It was God's word. It was God's covenant. But Paul begins here in verse 7. And he says, if the ministry of death, that's what he calls the law. That's what it is. It's the ministry of death. That was always the purpose of the law. In Galatians, he said, it's the schoolmaster to bring you to God, to teach the children of Israel. First of all, there was no righteousness. And he gave them that whole beautiful religion of the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the incense, and, and all the, the feasts that went along with it. So they would see there's always going to be sacrifices until the Lamb of God. Constant sacrifices. Why? Because man cannot save himself. And so the law comes in and it condemns. We need the law? Yes, we do. We need to preach the law so people can see, hey, this is what God expects in holiness. You're not going to make it. But Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has fulfilled the law for you. He's taking all the wrath due you because of the law. And he saves you and dresses you in his own righteousness, undeserved, set aside for him. But this ministry of death was external. As I looked there in verses 19, chapters 19 through 34, what an amazing experience the children of Israel had. Three months they left Egypt and they came to Sinai. And God called Moses up on that mountain. And he began to speak to him. 
And then he said, gather the people, tell them not to touch the mountain. I'm going to talk to them. And God went down and he spoke out loud with thunder and lightning and with a sound of a trumpet, maybe the trumpet that we'll hear at the rapture. And he gave them the Ten Commandments verbally from his mouth to their ears. And what was their reaction? Moses, tell God not to talk to us. It's too scary. So God heard him. He says, Moses, you come up here. And he gave him more laws and he gave him the worship system. And then he said, now go ask the people. So he went down and asked the people, you accept it? They said, oh, yes, we'll follow you, God. We will follow you. So they had sacrifices. And they collected the blood of the sacrifices. And Moses sprinkled the people with the blood. And they said, we'll keep God's covenant. And then God said, Moses, come up here all the way to the top of the mountain. And he said, you have any problems in the meantime? You can deal with the high priest. And so Moses went up there for 40 days. Now remember, they'd heard the law from Moses, or from God directly. In his voice, no graven images, right? They got it. And now the glory cloud, it says, it sat up on the top of the mountain like a burning furnace. I worked in a foundry with a great big burning furnace. And i sure that was nothing compared to the visible presence of God on Mount Sinai. The place shook. It was there night and day for 40 days. It didn't take too long. They began to rationalize. And they said, well, as for this Moses guy, see how they distanced himself? Well, we don't know what happened to him. Yeah, he's gone. Surely, he's been consumed. They said, Aaron, what we need is a calf. We need a calf. He said, well, bring me all your gold earrings. They took the gold earrings, and he formed a calf, and they began to worship it. And the worship turned to licentiousness pretty quick. So God told Moses, all right, it's time to go down. Your people have already gone aside. You see, because the effects of the law are temporary. Even with the thunder and the furnace going on on top of the mountain. It's amazing to me later to read the account of the tabernacle at Shiloh. You get a chance to go to Israel. That's one of the amazing places that you get to visit. And the reason it's so amazing is because it, it's out in the country, so it's not a place that they just built and built and built on top of it. You can go right there, and here's where the tabernacle was. Here's where Eli sat. Here's where Samuel's mother came, Hannah, to pray for a child. It's amazing. What's really amazing to me is that as women came to worship, they were seduced by the sons of Eli, those wicked priests, and there's the Shekinah glory. Like, well, as long as we don't go in the Holy of Holies, he can't touch us. Well, God dealt with those two. But see, the law came and it had amazing glory because it was God. So God said, Moses, get back down there. Moses, in his own anger, throws the tablets down, destroys them, destroys the idol. Then he goes back to talk to God again. And in chapter 33... He prays what Charles Spurgeon said is the most awesome, 
amazing prayer that a man can ever pray for. And that is, God, show me your glory. And God said to Moses, you can't see my face because it will kill you. Folks, we're going to have to have new bodies to withstand the physical presence of God's holiness in heaven. And he's going to do that for us. The Bible says in 1 John 3, we're going to be just like him. We're going to be like Jesus. And have it yet. So Moses, what I'll do is I'll, pass, I'll cause all my goodness to pass before you. And there's a place right here in the rock. I'm going to put my hand over that place in the rock. And I'm going to pass by and then you can look at my back. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face reflected the glory of God. His face shone. Now, I don't know what the effect was on the people because pretty soon Moses would take the veil off to talk to God. It says in, in, in uh, chapter 34 that God talked to Moses like a friend talks to his friend. But every time he came back out, he would put the veil down, not because it was scaring the people, but because he didn't want the people to see the glow as it faded. Was it because as soon as it was gone, in the rebellious hearts, they say, who are you? Your face isn't shiny anymore. I don't know. There was some effect it was having, so Moses put the veil over his face when he came out so they wouldn't see the glory as it faded away. See, the law was never meant to be permanent because God knew he was going to send his only begotten son. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. It's not an internal law. It's written on stone. It has a fading effect and it obscures. You say, well, how does the law obscure? See, unless the Holy Spirit convicts a person of sin, you, you, you can talk to a person who's not even religious and they have their own sense of justice. They figure out, well, I'll be okay because I've done this and I'm not as bad as this person over here. But the flesh naturally wants a standard. And he said that even today, whenever the law is read, instead of getting the effect that God brings, a veil lies over their heart. See, Romans 8, 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. You see, that was the point. God gave the law, and there's something in us that says, we can do that. It's only 10 of them, right? We, we can keep, yeah, that's easy. We can do that. And yet it gets down to covetousness. And then Jesus comes, and he says, well, God's not just looking what you think you're getting away with. He's looking all the way in at your heart and your thoughts. That's the Spirit of God. So if you hate your brother, God says you're guilty of murder. He says, if you hate your brother, how does the love of God dwell in you? You're probably not a believer. He says, if, you, if a man looks after a woman to lust after, guilty of adultery. Well, sorry, I didn't actually do it. God sees it. It's an offense. So what the Pharisees thought they were accomplishing, Jesus blows it apart. He said, God sees your heart. Ephesians chapter 4 says, all things are naked and open before, before the God with whom we have to do. There's nothing hidden 
from God's eyes. He sees it all. And it couldn't change anything. And then in verses 16 and 17, Paul switches gears again. Because in that passage, he's saying, listen, there was the glory of the old covenant, but there's nothing compared to the new covenant. Because in the new covenant, there is the ministry of liberty. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Isn't that an amazing statement? There's all these statements all the time. Whosoever will may come, chosen before the foundation of the world. John 1, 12 and 13. It says, whoever believes on him, God gave the power to become the sons of God. Whoever. Because he said in the first few verses of John 1, he was in the world, the world was made by him, the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But whoever will believe. But the next verse 13 says, which were born... Not of blood, not because your parents were believers, nor the will of the flesh. You just don't get up one day and say, oh, you know, I think I'll change myself into a Christian today. You can't do that. Nor the will of man. Somebody else can't put you in the kingdom. So no church has a corner on salvation. But of God. It's God's spirit that convicts a person of sin. It's God's spirit that gives the grace that they might hope in Christ. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then it says the next verse, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works. So here he says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, and yet we know you can't turn to the Lord unless the Holy Spirit draws you, right? But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It's an amazing thing to watch. A person gets saved, and all of a sudden, this word is personal. It's personal. It's God talking to you, and you have understanding. Why is that? 1 John 2.17 says that you have need that no man teach you, but such as the anointing you've received. Now you have a Holy Spirit that teaches you, that convicts you, that walks with you that gives you grace to be obedient, that leads you. Luke 4, 18, Jesus has gone back to visit his hometown of Nazareth. He's already begun his ministry. He's already done miracles. They're anxious to see him. And he goes to the synagogue that day and they hand him the scrolls because he's kind of homegrown son and so it's his honor to read the scripture that day and he he chooses Isaiah 61 and he quotes that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord that was the year right then their opportunity to follow the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world and then he sat down and they hated him. He said, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your sight. And they hated him. They tried to kill him right then. But you see, in the gospel, there is not only liberty to choose the Lord and understand your lost condition. There is the power to save 
He says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's liberty. God gives the power to hope in Christ. It's not religion. It's not just knowledge. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that says, you don't, you, maybe you've heard the gospel before. Maybe you heard it all your life growing up. We were talking about this week, Lynn and I. He grew up in churches that preached the gospel, but it wasn't until it was a, as a senior in high school out in his dad's ranch and some of the hay meadows, all of a sudden the light went on. Who was that? That was God. That wasn't Lynn finally coming to the place he figured it out. That was God opening Lynn's heart and mind to hold it. Wow, I think I believe. And what we follow through with a prayer of repentance, confession, that's Romans 10, 9, and 10. In verse 18, the gospel ministry is a glorious ministry. Now Moses was the only one of the whole nation that had the privilege to go in and talk to God. You think Moses took that lightly? Hey, Lord, I got a lot of management to do. We got millions of people out here, and I will get to you later. Besides, I have some experience now in this leadership thing. I mean, you know, you and I, we did the plagues, walked through the Red Sea. I got a lot to do, Lord. I don't think so. I don't think the, that Moses ever missed an opportunity to spend time with God. And it says here, but we all, we all have that opportunity to go spend time with the God of creation, the God of our salvation, the Lord of your life, the shepherd of your soul. But we all, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. It wasn't just knowledge. It's not just getting knowledge of Scripture. It's walking with God. It's the fellowship with God. What's the proof? The fruit in your life. That's why Peter wrote in his last epistle when he said, make sure your election in Christ. That's the words he used. How make sure how? What, what was the standard he said? Are you adding to your faith these virtues? Are you growing in gentleness and knowledge and love? If you're not, then one of two things is true. You're either not saved or you become nearsighted. You forgot how God saved you and what he saved you from. You see, Peter cared about those people. Make sure you belong to God. The idea is Moses walked with God. He talked with God. He would hear God's word and he would go out and he would obey God. That's why it is the challenge of our elders not to come up with some big ideas ourselves. But in everything we pray, every decision, Lord, what do you want your church to do? What do you want your elders to do? But you know what? That's the opportunity for every single one of it, isn't it? But we leave the big things for God. When we're in trouble, we can't do anything else about it. Oh, Lord, help me. When the instruction from, from Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 was, don't be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. 
the big things and the things that others might think are insignificant. You want God's perfect will in everything. That's what Paul said. Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. This is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to the world. The world has a way they deal with things. By their experience, by their knowledge, their worldly knowledge. He said, no, no. Not the way the world does it. The world's trying to cram you into its mold. You don't go that way but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might find out what is that good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Because your shepherd, he wants to lead you in everything. Then he says, we're being transformed into the same image. First John 3, Jesus said, every person has the hope of seeing Jesus one day, purifies himself even as he is pure. What does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit is now your new DNA. Jesus lives within you. He's your life force. And that life force has a way. You have to quench it before it, it, it doesn't come out. But it leads you by his grace, and he gives you the grace to make decisions that you might be more like Christ. That's what the whole church is about, Ephesians chapter 4. He's given gifted men to the church so the church can be taught so the church through their giftedness can minister to one another until we grow and we mature under the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen by externals. That happens by the Holy Spirit within. And then he says, we're being transformed in the image of Christ from glory to glory. In John 1.16, it says, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace upon grace the grace isn't just the power of god at salvation it's the gospel we need every single day god's grace in our life you see his grace we experience his grace upon grace that we might experience his glory upon glory seeing god work one of the great joys in my life as a pastor is to not just see people make decisions for Christ and come to Christ and make a profession of faith, but when they begin to realize that's God shepherding their soul. And they begin to make those decisions that they would not make, they wouldn't even think about apart from the glory of God. You look at the epistle of 1 John, and he says, you know, there's some new things going to be happening in your life. You're going to have a desire to share Christ. And then... You're going to have a desire for fellowship with other believers. And then you have this other thing, this new conviction of sin, so that you're always confessing your sin. And he gets to the last chapter, he says, that ought to be a way of life, transparency, confessing your sins one to another. Where does that come from? From the new life, from the grace of God. But we just looked at the chapter before, and it said God is always leading us in his triumph. A month or so ago, I preached a message on the joy of the ministry. This is it. The joy of the ministry is experiencing the glory of God time after time after time as he provides for us, as he leads, as we get an opportunity to stand for him and share, as we see people come to Christ, as we see people grow in Christ. Glory upon glory upon glory until one day we see him face to face. Colossians 1.26 
says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the mystery of the glory among the Gentiles? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what's Paul's reaction to that? We preach Christ admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within us. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to be the savior of the world, our savior, that you worked individually, that you chose us on purpose and you didn't just cheese, chose us, but you, you worked so that we were in a position and you sent that person to that opportunity for us to hear and you opened our ears to hear and then you gave us the grace to trust in you. And then you've called us into fellowship that we all have that opportunity with unveiled face to go and fellowship with you, that you are our shepherd. And you called us into ministry to be be your ambassadors. And that even if we, whatever we suffer here cannot be compared to the glory that we're going to share with you. Lord, it's overwhelming because we deserve none of it. So now, Lord, as we gather around the communion table, examine our hearts. First, to see whether we're in. Do we belong to you? Secondly, as believers, examine our hearts for sin and then grant us repentance that we might come with clean hands. And the Lord bless us in your church with your presence as we sup with you and remember that all that we have, all that we are is because of Jesus. And we'll give you all the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.